Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. For those of you who don't know, Naomi is the Managing Director for Marketing and Client Relationships for Athena Fine Art, which is a division of Yield Street. Also joining us today is Adrian Mayer, the Global Head of Private Sales at Christie's. I'm Jeremy Hopkin, the editor of The Canvas, an in-depth art world newsletter that takes readers inside the major galleries, auction houses, and art fairs, and profiles the decision makers who run them. Today, we're going to be talking about new models in the art world and what to expect in the fourth quarter as the pandemic really has accelerated a number of changes and trends in our industry, just like it's done across industries throughout the world. We're gonna be taking questions for the last 10 minutes of the webinar, and then I guess we'll just jump right in, okay? So Naomi, Adrian, to start, I kinda want to take a step back and look at things from a bird's eye view. What's been your vantage point, Naomi? What's been going on in the art world over the summer? Just give us a a brief kind of take. Sure. I think at the beginning, everybody was giving a little knee jerk because we didn't know what to do in this pandemic. But from a bird's eye view, what I recognize is we've all kind of gone back to the core of art and culture, where we really were breaking through the boundaries of being creative and figuring out new ways to get people to activate the art world, to be a part of the art world. Kind of like, you know, if you're in a space with big sculptures like a Richard Serra, He's constantly asking you to reconfigure your your time and your space and the way you walk around a sculpture and create your own path. And I think whether it's a gallery, whether it's an auction house, or whether it's even in the art lending space, we're really going back to that time when there's a square where you're pulling out those little angles and you're really recreating a new path. And I feel, and, and Adrian, I'm curious to hear what you think, but also the collectors or the, your clients or the people you engage with are ready for that new exposure. I think it was always so easy to go back to the old way and people are looking for new experiences and new ways in which the art world is functioning. I think it's a huge creative juice for all of us, both the viewer and the people in our seats. And Adrian, I'll turn it over to you to see if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, Naomi, that's exactly what happened. What's fascinating is that I would say within two to three months, collectors have transformed radically their way of approaching the art market at a pace which would have taken them otherwise two to three years. And that was led by several factors. First of all, the fact that there were no longer art fairs, there were no longer auctions, there were no longer those sort of key milestones. And therefore, as you were saying, they rebuilt a totally new landscape and adapted to new habits, such as 
spending twice more time online, considering purchases in a sort of 3D, well, in a virtual way online. Um, and those sort of new behaviors uh, facilitated uh, immensely those changes which we auction houses have been going through, not only with our new sales schedules, but with our new formats. And I think they're probably you know, bound to remain that way. This being said, there's obviously one thing which won't change and which remains needed from our collectors, especially in view of the fact that they're still keen to continue buying, acquiring, and exchanging, is the physical connection with the works of art and with the specialists. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because even from my perspective, which is really, you know, we're, a, we're an art back lender, so we don't have new exhibitions coming up every month. We don't have new consignments. We don't have new information to share with people. So I become the billboard for that, that content. So it has been an interesting cycle, especially this summer, to figure out what my new face looks like, what the new path for Athena Art Finance looks like, how we get our message out, because we are such a culture of interaction. We are such a space where we feed off of other people's energy and understanding and not having that component is a difficult thing. Uh, I know we're all rewiring and we're doing the best we can. And I will echo what you said. I think that the art world in general has been pushing the envelope, but now we're at a place because we've had no choice where everybody's had to come on board and everyone's had to be like, okay, now we can't just do what has always been expected. And even in our environment, people are taking the time to think about what it is that art back lending means, what it does for them, how it can help them, how it can benefit them, how it can let them acquire more works at auction, how we can help assist with that. But not being in front of people has been a, a big challenge for me. Well, I mean, I want to ask you both because especially something that you said, Adrian, which was that the art world is really built around these specific moments in time throughout the calendar year. There's the major auction sales in New York in November and May. There are the art fairs, Art Basel Miami, Art Basel in Basel, Freeze New York, Freeze London. Without those kind of main events that really focus attention on the market, it seems like there's been a kind of breakdown of the calendar. and auction houses, fairs, and really everyone are reassessing whether there needs to be those that adherence to those set times or whether there can be auctions in New York in October, for instance. I'm just kind of wondering from your standpoint, I think you mentioned that you think the calendar will be shifted going forward. Why do you think that the pandemic was not necessary, but why do you think the pandemic caused that to happen? Well, first of all, by reaction. Simply, you know, the fact that we did not get to do our traditional May series of sales, but yet we had to do our first half revenue, having those intense internal discussions, you can imagine, with management to say, we, we'll get, you know, we'll get to achieve our objectives. I can't we, had no, we basically had no choice. Obviously, you know, bearing in mind we could deliver the same capacity for the consignments because that's who we are mandated by. So, you know, initial discussions were, you know, never on earth will we do anything, whether it's an auction or an exhibition, after July the 4th weekend. And we ended up going full blades for sale on July the 10th. Why? Because we realized within a matter of weeks that the, the entire environment in which our clients evolved had changed and allowed us to take such a daring initiative. How did that, you know, actually happen. It was by innovating the format itself 
as you may have seen, we had several auctioneers taking over one from each other in a sort of, well, not sort of, in a very innovative way for what used to be a very traditional sale, but also the way we featured those works. They were no longer only shown at Rockefeller Center, but we decided to send them to the Hamptons. And actually, we even had the opportunity to show them at probably the most prestigious place in the Hamptons, which was the Parish Museum. So by default, we, we, we were fortunate to end up finding opportunities which we never would have thought of had we not been in this sort of impasse. The fall is pretty much the same story. Who knows what's going to happen with the elections either way? Who knows what the stock market, how the stock market will respond, whatever the outcome is. And therefore, we decided to take a very cautious approach by taking advantage of the momentum while it was still good and imposing a second challenge on us, which was to do you know, to, 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 how do you say, to advance the sales schedule by a month and therefore, you know, to have less of a business getting period, but within a very confident selling environment, which our clients have very much responded to, with the possibility of even doing a second one late November or even early December. So instead of having one big sale right in the middle of November during our elections, which traditionally had not proven to be a challenging times, we simply decided to minimize a risk exposure by doing two saves. Got it. Okay. That, I mean, that's very, very interesting. I don't think I fully appreciated all the all of the nuances there when I first heard about the decision. But I want to kind of piggyback off of that and bring Naomi back into the conversation. Because I think the reason that's possible, Adrian, is that it used to be the auctions were held those same weeks in November and May because there was a tacit kind of agreement between the auction houses. We'll all do our auctions that week. And that's when the collectors will be in town. They can see the works in person. Now, nobody's really seeing the, well, I mean, some people are seeing works in person here or there, a private viewing, or they'll send an advisor. But I'm wondering, Naomi, if you could kind of weigh in here, what have you been hearing just through the grapevine from your own perspective in terms of, are clients really feeling much more comfortable buying art online? I mean, I'll say a couple of things. One, I think the calendar shifted also, you know, a lot of the, the the potential buyers saw the artwork well in advance of the auctions sale date anyway. They were committing or thinking about committing well before the auction date. And many of them, and Adrian can confirm this, they buy online rather than go in person to, to bid. So it, this just really pushed- buy through a specialist. Buy through a specialist or buy on the phone, but they didn't need to actually be physically in this space. They did want to physically see the work or they had somebody look at the work for them. But this idea that I think that the auction houses and the artwork in general was was already shifting in one direction, but we weren't pushed to have to shift. So you don't really make that change unless there's this, now unfortunately it's COVID that pushed the issue to do that. I mean, for me, in the Arbag lending space, it's a, you know, it's a, a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly exposure. We don't necessarily get busier during auction season. We don't necessarily get busier during the fall and the spring when the galleries start re-upping their exhibitions. But what I will say is when we do branding, like what we've done um, as within the canvas that are strategically placed during those times, that's when more eyes look at what it is that we do and start thinking about the opportunities that they have. I feel as if that now, and it's really a condition of everybody not leaving their home and bunkering down, whether they're in the Hamptons, whether they're in Aspen, whether in Montana, whether they're here in New York, they're being fed so much content. They really are now having the ability to vet out those things that aren't of value to them. 
and focusing on those aspects that are. I think for me in my business, it's still very important to attach the message to when there's the biggest uh, exposure happening in the art market, because otherwise it just becomes a little bit like wallpaper and they're not, they're not really thinking about the sale or the acquisition. But if we are now spreading things out over time, I believe that our business will not have the, the peaks and valleys that it typically has. The summer's always been very busy. When I was in the auction business for what I did was always very busy in the summer. It still continues to be for art lending because it's a time during business when people are off on their own. The kids might be at camp or they're doing summer things where they're really thinking about their personal solutions rather than their business needs. And so I've always had an August that was particularly busy and this August proved to be the same. It was very busy in terms of people looking at art lending, very busy in Europe more than in the United States, interestingly. And I think it's gonna to continue to grow. And I believe that with the sales not having their stringent calendars anymore, my hope, I don't know if it's true, is that there will be a more continual inquiry about uh, the solution set that we have. Well, it's interesting because for me, summer is the quietest time of the year by far. But I know, Adrian, that Christie's did really quite an innovative sale over the summer. It was an online sale titled Dream Big. I'm wondering if you could kind of share some of the details about that. Explain what Dream Big's concept was. Yeah, so basically at the 11th hour, we changed our plans for the spring, uh, our private sale plans, which were initially to display works of art under a particular theme and decided to invest entirely uh, the digital world around a totally different theme. And what we decided to do there again was to leverage the fact that everything would be digital to, trans to, to help clients transact, sell or buy works of art which were traditionally not well promoted by our traditional platforms, i.e. our selling rooms, our galleries, and therefore mainly the large-scale works of art, you know, large, you know, difficult to handle, such as sculptures, outdoor sculptures, with a nice sort of echo to the fact that many of our clients had been spending more time than ever in their respective gardens and environments, probably wanting to rethink their own environment and, and, and wanting to upgrade them. So the advantage of this was also to allow consigners to keep the works of art in situ until they would find a buyer, therefore reducing the logistical costs and complications while optimizing the selling opportunities. And, you know, we had reasonable ambitions and we ended up having a, a very significant group of work, over 50 works, you know, from Rodin to Jeff Koons. And we featured them online from basically early, late June until Labor Day. And the event turned out to be extremely successful because clients, you know, were scrolling on our website much more often because we had a very strong promotional campaign and because it turns out that we responded to particular needs of that time. The nice additional bit, obviously, is the link between the investment in, in the financial investment and the return. The whole thing costed less than $35,000 to put in place, whereas any single exhibition, even of a low scale, is obviously much costlier. And you can imagine that the return was of a, of a different level. I mean, it, it's really an interesting concept to me for two reasons. One is because I think it goes against, in a way, conventional wisdom that these large-scale sculptures would sell so well online. I think 
the reason for that is because they're outdoors. It's maybe not as reliant on the condition being in perfect condition or looking at the individual brushstrokes like you would want to with a, a Monet. But then the other, the other kind of really interesting thing here is that, you know, at, and you said this at the beginning, auction houses don't really prioritize large scale sculptures. They don't, it's expensive to install them at the house during the sale. They're usually included at the end of the sale by designation. But here's a case where the pandemic, because it caused everyone to be home and to be more comfortable buying online in general across the art world, here was an area where you and your team were able to kind of come in and say, okay, now that people are comfortable buying art online in general, why don't we offer these online as well? And it created an entirely new revenue stream and potential business model for those kinds of objects at Christie's. Just my kind of own two cents. But I want to kind of move on because you both have, have mentioned the Hamptons. I know uh, Adrian Christie's previewed some of the works from its Global One sale at the Paris Museum. Naomi, I think you were out, out east at one point. I was out east at one point taking a look around. I mean, a number of the main blue chip contemporary galleries have opened up spaces in the Hamptons to be close to their clients while they're out there. The other auction houses have also opened up spaces. Phillips has opened up a space in Southampton. Sotheby's has opened up a space in East Hampton. And it looks like that Sotheby's is also looking to kind of replicate the success that their, their East Hampton space has had by launching additional spaces in other cities where clients might be throughout the winter, whether that be Palm Beach or Gestad or Aspen. I'm wondering if you can kind of both speak to the this idea of going to where the clients are in this kind of environment, as opposed to trying to bring them into a fair. Naomi, can you kind of start off? Well, first of all, I'm going to all those places because you know you have to be where the clients are. So sure. I understand. You have to prioritize Aspen and Gestad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, actually, I was I was reading something the other day, which was, you know, all of these um, galleries and and even museums and become destinations because they become this architectural setting to showcase works of art. And now we're going back to the mom and pop kind of what's for rent on the block, being able to put together beautiful exhibitions in spaces where we kind of uh, moved away from. And I believe what I'm finding, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing is that people will go, people will go to see art in any location, especially if it is closer to where they're living. People don't want to necessarily have to schlep into New York City if they're staying in the Hamptons and they're educating their children there. They don't want to have to make an appointment, maybe not make the appointment. The spontaneity of, of having to see art right now in Manhattan proper is a little onerous in, in a way. I mean, you can go, but you have to sign up for it and make sure you can get in. But I think it's important for people to feel that art and culture is around them in every place that they are. And I'm thrilled that these larger galleries are opening up these smaller pop-ups because, you know, without art and cultures, spaces, you know, can feel a little dry and, and date. And even in New York, I know there's an organization that's looking at all of the empty windows on like, I guess it's Madison Avenue and trying to get young artists to show their work in there because why not look at art instead of boarded up buildings or a for rent sign. You may as well make it an experience and, and to all of us in this space, get people involved in art and culture that otherwise wouldn't have gone in or gone to see something. 
So I think it will continue. I, I, I believe, I, I might be speaking out of my ear, but I know that when I spoke to the auction houses, because we do a lot of work with them, even outside of that pandemic, going to where people had second homes during various times of the season was something that was very important because you want to get in front of your clients where they are at good points of time for them. You know, we are a very consignment-driven business. We're a very client-facing business. And we need to adapt to our clients' needs and, and things that are going to make sense for them at the time when it's right for them. So, hey, you know, if they're in the Hamptons, if they're in Aspen, if they're in Gestalt, if they're in Palm Beach, if they're in Miami, that's where we'll go. And I believe that's, that's why galleries started opening up and auction houses and museums, their offshoot spaces or their second galleries in places where there was a community of people that were active and they wanted to get closer to them so they could create relationships with them more than just once or twice a year during the height of the season. I mean, yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying. And, and Adrian, I'm wondering if you could kind of weigh in here. But my understanding was that in the past, the summers were really kind of a downtime for the art market and specifically in the Hamptons. There have been a number of fairs that have tried to launch in the Hamptons. Much, none have really ever caught on. And the sense was kind of that collectors wanted to be unplugged and, and not thinking about the market during the summer when they were in their Hamptons homes. I guess, Adrian, in your mind, what's been different this time around? Why has it changed? I think what's fundamental is to make sure that whatever the uh, galleries, auction houses initiate is not out of touch. I think had we done this one or two months earlier, right in the heart of the crisis, it would have been extremely badly perceived. Like, you know, come on guys, you know, there, there are thousands of deaths every day. This is, you, you, you know, so it's also choosing the right moment when you know that people are in the right mood for that, which turned out to be a perfect timing because the end, the sort of end of the first wave in any case did happen during summer at a time when people were in the Hamptons. So there was a very good conjunction of events, the sort of low end of, of the crisis and the fact that people were on holiday wanting to have fun and to be dis distracted by, by works of art. I think the question is whether there will be the same curiosity to go through those galleries next summer. Obviously, if, if we are in the same sort of unpredictable environment, uh, there, there, there might be. If things are back to normal, maybe less so, because they know that they'll find what they want in the city or in their traditional art fairs. I think they, they enjoyed seeing it as an unexpected substitute to their traditional uh, ways mm -hmm. of interacting with the art market. That's what was so smart about it. I think it's, it's all about surprising our, our audience, but, but obviously doing it the, the right way while innovating. And if you tick those, those boxes, then you, you, you get it right. And, and, and why not create a pattern? You know, even if just, you know, people are ready to be social again in some capacity. But I think this landscape or navigating this landscape is in a continual flux. So what's working today might not work next month. And we have to be really aware. And to Adrian's point, you have to be very sensitive to the values that the clients and the world is facing. And to be antithetical to that and, and starting out that hard sales pitch in a time that's inappropriate will totally destroy the integrity of what you're trying to achieve. But we are constantly, there's no new normal. And I don't know when that new normal is going to happen, but every week and every month we're adapting and hopefully the rest of the community will adapt along with us. And if they're not, we'll learn from that and we'll change along those paths 
that we have to so we continue to be in alignment. I want to build on that, but I also want to just uh, give a little PSA and encourage everyone to, if you have a question, we're going to be answering them towards the end. We're also going to be talking about the market specifically going into the fourth quarter uh, and next year in a few moments. But I think to your point, Naomi and Adrian, I think the Hamptons really worked over the summer in this case because the galleries didn't have fairs and they didn't have shows where they were able to sell. So as opposed to in a normal year when they might have trotted out secondary, not as blue chip or positive material, this was a case where they really brought their A game and they brought works that collectors would respond to, to the Hamptons. Who knows if that's going to be the case next summer when, again, we don't know what's gonna happen, but fairs will hopefully in some form or another be back uh, and exhibitions will have been running and galleries will be able to make sales. Before we kind of move on to the, to the market, Adrian, does, does Christie's have any kind of plan to do these dedicated spaces in, in these kinds of markets? Yes, I mean, we are monitoring it and sort of reviewing those, those opportunities on a daily basis. None are totally official yet, but, uh, but we, will be, we will be initiating a few, a few pop-ups at some point in the fall, whether it's in Florida uh, or, or elsewhere in any case to make sure we, we stay in touch with our clients for sure. Yeah. Got it. Well, as a native Floridian, I'm always open for uh, yeah, if you want to pick I'll, my I'll brain where, for where to go. Yeah. So I want to talk about the market specifically, uh, heading into the fourth quarter and into 2021. You know, galleries, UBS and Art Basel released their big kind of report on the art world last week or the week before. And gallery sales are down 36% compared to the same period in 2019. I'm wondering... As the stock market and economy have become a little bit more volatile, obviously the stock market's been up recently, especially over the last two months. How do you both expect that to affect the market? So Naomi, can, can we kind of start off with you? You can. I mean, I wish I really had a crystal ball on that one. I don't know how it's going to affect the art market. But, you know, we don't, we don't deal or transact in artwork on a daily basis. What we do is we, we, we do market cash values in order to perfect loans. And actually what we've seen is that by and large, the property that clients are looking to borrow against has maintained their value. We haven't had to reduce any of our, our loan capacities due to the marketplace. Maybe it's because we have some fairly bespoke works of art that are, that are significant, but even still, you know, we have lent against some primary market artists that don't have a robust secondary market history, but the stock market and the auction market or the art market, while they're aligned, don't always follow the same volatility. You know, there are moments when people are going to hold things back because they want to make sure that the market is going to support the value that they feel that it can bear. And there's times in the stock market where people are just reactive and they're losing money and they need to sell something and they'll sell at a reduced rate, which is not happening during this time. And it can speak much, much more clearly and better than I can on that. But what I have heard and what I do know is that still, you know, when you're looking at any form of the market, whether it's the younger, more emerging artists to the middle market, to the high end of the market, the best works will always sell. There'll always be a demand for that. We see surprises every day on how things escalate in value. I think the, the, the reason why things have ebbed down more is just because some of the newer buyers, which there have been many of them, might not be as active as they used to be. 
And I do think that everybody was trying to figure out how to best react and respond to the marketplace. And as everything kind of levels out, I'm hoping that we'll see those rates change on the upward slope as people get more confident and comfortable in the new mechanisms by which they have to look at art and buy art and engage in the art market. And I do believe that it's actually opening doors to some of the newer buyers that felt like there were too many barriers of entry into this space, which now everybody's really welcoming these conversations where they haven't before. I mean, I think that's definitely been the case on the primary market that, I, that I've seen, people being able to kind of skip the line for in-demand artists and initiate those kinds of conversations with galleries in a much easier and easily accessible way. Adrian, to start, do you, do you agree with Naomi in terms of the, the stock market and the art market not necessarily being maybe being aligned, but not necessarily being totally correlated? No, they are aligned, but there's always a jet lag. You know, there's a, a sort of a, a, t a time difference between both. And it's not as much the, the wealth that might be affected than the, the mindset. A billionaire will always remain a billionaire, even if the stock market declines by 40%. He just won't be in the same mood. What's interesting is that many of our buyers who are you know, in a great buying mode uh, have kept asking us for COVID opportunities, you know, those distressed sellers. Mm -hmm. They haven't showed up. We are not. Well, I, I do know of one, one in the market, but yes, otherwise they have not. Broadly speaking, yeah. yeah the, the, the market hasn't been fueled by those distressed sales. But it's interesting to see that there's been more of a, of a behavior of, of clients on the buying end wanting to take advantage of those than, than those who needed to sell so far. So I'm guessing there's a widespread in terms of what, especially, I, I mean, this is one of the questions. One of the questions that's come in so far is, should we expect lower estimates for the upcoming auctions? And I'm wondering, Adrian, are you seeing a large spread in between buyers and sellers in terms of what the expectations are? I know that was the case in the spring. The fall has been, uh, clients have been quite reasonable. Uh, you know, you'll see there'll be a good sort of uh, a balance between uh, guarantees and straightforward sales without guarantees. But in essence, clients have understood the merits of attractive estimates. They're getting there. You know, our, our sort of daily challenge is to explain one of the greatest paradox of our market, which is that the lowest the estimate is, the more attractive it is. It's, it's maybe a reverse psychology from the real estate market, but it's the way it works. Uh, if you make it low, people will show up. Uh, they will send their advisors. They will ask questions. And that's how you build you know, the excitement. So yes, I think uh, overall, our full auctions, uh, even though the numbers are adding up nicely, are nevertheless keeping uh, the pricing at, at very attractive levels, uh, which, is, which is fundamental, especially in such volatile environments. Got it. I mean. Another part that's really been interesting is, again, pointing to that UBS, our Basel report, they did a survey amongst collectors. I don't, I don't remember the exact details of, of the science of how they did the survey, but 59% of the collectors they, they queried said that the pandemic has increased their interest in collecting. And 92% of them said that they actually bought a work of art this year. Naomi, what would you attribute that to? Is it just people being bored at home? and wanting to shop? I don't think it's that people are bored at home and wanting to shop. I think people are finally taking the time to look at their collections in the way they haven't, trying to figure out what other works of art speak nicely in concert with the works that they have, looking to see what gaps they may have had in their collection, and also just looking to see, do is there a better example or a different example of the same artist's work that I like just as much? 
there is a component, of course, of people being at home, but it really, I think, has this has been just a reprocessing for people. There's just, you're spending hours at home and thankfully they want to fill it by looking at art, looking to see what else they can acquire or, or what they can sell to fill in gaps. I don't, I don't really think you're going to get somebody just buying for the sake of buying. I think you're getting a much more thoughtful approach and looking, whether you're a new collector or a seasoned collector, it's an opportunity to really look at what you have in storage, if you're reinstalling things, what you might want to have, and really honing in on where your heart is now. Tastes change, ideas change, cross-marketing within departments changes. You might be an impressions collector, but you might want to have a contemporary work of art. Everything speaks to each other in some way. And I think COVID has given people the opportunity to take that backseat that they never gave themselves before. Adrian, I mean, this cross-category collecting was already happening before COVID, but it does feel like it's been accelerated significantly since. I mean, it used to be that you would have impressionist collectors who would stick with impressionist material or even a Monet collector who would only kind of collect Monet. Now we're seeing collectors who, while still discerning and have kind of sourceship, are, they're a little bit agnostic to categories and they'll want an amazing old master hanging up right next to an amazing living young contemporary artist. It feels like that's happening more and more at the auction sales. I mean, the Christie's sale just today, we found out the one in October in New York is going to feature literally a dinosaur, a a massive T-Rex skeleton. That's certainly of a different category. Uh, Something we wouldn't have seen before. Can you kind of walk me through why you think that's been the case? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, speaking of, of breaking the boundaries of particular periods, that's quite a, a good example. I mean, listen, we, we simply have been witnessing the way our clients live and what they respond to. And until four or five years ago, our traditional sales were held separately from each other, one week after the other. The other. And five years ago, more or less, we decided to feature all of them at the same time within the same building, you know, trying to uh, recreate the, the sort of art fair spirit because it's easier for our clients, but also because we found out that those clients, as you just said, mix those works together. We went a step further this year by combining our departments into one entity, the 2021st Century Department, where our, our specialists can speak amongst each other because the clients are the same. So we might as well be all on the same page and speak to our clients the same way, even if the opportunities we bring to them are different. So uh-huh. there's a sort of natural evolution which is responding to, to, to those needs. And then just kind of finishing up before we take the q and I'm wondering, I guess, Adrian, you kind of touched on this a little bit before, you know, obviously none of us are economists, but I'm wondering what your take is kind of on where the market will be specifically if things do get a little uncertain here in the U.S. between the U.S. election and whether COVID kind of combines with the flu season and we see a surge in cases. Do you expect prices to fall in that case? Do you expect market activity to fall further? Listen, by experience, while there's always been this sort of paranoia around the elections, our auctions have always proven to be not directly reactive either way to to the elections. Obviously, the current environment is of slightly different nature, not only because of the contenders, but also because of the volatile health environment we're evolving in. So putting both together is creating a, a, a slightly one predictable uh, outcome. Obviously, I think that I'm repeating what I hear from traders 
and people in the financial world, the stock market is more likely to react abruptly to a new regime simply because they don't know, you know, well, simply because it won't be what they knew uh, versus the opposite. If that's the case, yes, it's not impossible that the art market will react in the same way. But it all depends on the extent of this uh, impact. Okay, I want to get to some questions here. I've got two questions here that are a little bit combined. One says, does Christie's have an art loan department like Sotheby's? Or do you refer potential loans to external art lenders? And then the other question, which is specifically combined with that, is how do Christie's and Athena collaborate? So, Adrian, I'll let you kind of answer the first part of the question about whether Christie's has an art loan department. And then, Naomi, I imagine you'll take it from there. Yeah. So we are actually, as we speak, putting this service together to assist our clients with such needs. So in a very, on the very short term run, we will be providing our clients with art loans. Uh, but at the same time, we have been working uh, quite extensively with uh, Naomi and Athena in general. So it, it, is, it is an activity which our clients are very, very receptive to. Money is cheap. Opportunities are valuable. They might as well do the best out of them. But yeah. Naomi, you're better placed to... It actually started out as a strategic partnership, really for when Athena started to engage with the greater public and to get our message out there. So we really started out as working with Christie's on a lot of events and trying to engage with clients, not necessarily sharing our message on this kind of platform, but just engaging with clients. That dovetailed into working with Christie's financial services departments, which, was, which did not have a lending service at the time, and that they would refer clients to us should they need it. Everything was very, you know, discreet. We don't share any of that information. And sometimes they need a loan and sometimes they don't. But we do have this symbiotic relationship with them. We're not the only ones that work with Christie's at all. But we we do we do benefit from their client base or clients, you know, inquiring about possible loans or even on the acquisition side, we do this with all the auction houses actually. We go through the catalogs and we earmark and we put it on our platform works of art that we would give a loan against should you be the successful bidder. And oftentimes that becomes a conversation uh, within the Christie Specialist Departments when they're talking to their clients. So they can expand their wallet, so to speak, so they can either buy more works of art or go very robustly on a work of art that they otherwise might not have had the potential to do so. Got it. I mean, I have another question here about any areas where the both of you see where the wealth management industry could provide support for the art world professionals in providing value to clients. I mean, I know that a lot of the banks have high net worth individual departments and sometimes they offer their own financing solutions to clients and they do sometimes advise on estates being consigned to auction. But is there any kind of new ways going forward that the wealth management industry and the art world could work together? Well, I think they've worked together for decades and decades and decades, I know that the wealth management community and the trusted estate community rely heavily on the expertise that the auction houses provide because their, their expertise is in finance and investments and in, and in trust and estates, but their clients also have this capacity to have works of art and they have a red line to the specialists at the auction houses, which really help them figure out how best to manipulate and, and help the client shape their, their assets. I don't know that there's a, a new wave, but I think the bottom line is the more education people have, the more comfort they have around how 
the marketing and the, the sales cycles go and, and how valuations are created and the importance of artists work within the oeuvre of their bigger collections is a very important feature. And I know that the auction houses work very closely with those intermediaries, as do we, to help support them. And so they then support their clients. Got it. Uh, I just want to take one, one or two last kind of questions here and then wrap up. Someone here asked about AGP, which is the acronym for Aquavella, Gogosian, and Pace, which are three uh, large blue chip galleries. For those of you who don't know, those uh, three galleries, which would normally compete amongst one another, teamed up in February to handle the sale of a collector named Don Marin, who had built a very important, impressive collection of post-war and contemporary art throughout his life. And as opposed to that, collection going to an auction house like it normally would, the three made a guarantee to the family for a certain amount of money, and they sold the collection privately, although one work from that collection did actually end up back at Christie's during the, during the one sale, uh, since those three galleries weren't able to sell it at, at their price. I'm wondering, the, the question here, Adrian, is does AGP kind of worry Christie's at all, and what does Christie's take on AGP and how will it compete with AGP going forward? So uh, basically the first comment is that we're seeing this more as a very healthy evolution of our market. It's good to have several competitors because they create more attention and therefore you know, broaden the client base by doing so. So I see it as an opportunity. What will happen is the fact that Christie's will continue providing its services to its uh, client's database in the same way it always has. I think the question is what will AGP do to bring something to the table in the same way they did with Marin, where they had an existing relationship with Mr. Marin, whom they had formed a collection for. I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see what they do and, um, you know, rendezvous in six months, 12 months from now. But I see it as something which is constructive to, to all parties, even though it may sound paradoxical. Got it. I mean, I, really, the onus is on AGP to kind of prove itself in the market as opposed to... Yes, to because it's a new model they're, they're, right. they're stepping into. I hope if I could just say one thing. The, the one beautiful thing about these collections that have been honed for decades and decades and they come to public auction is that anybody can go in and see these collections that you otherwise would never have an opportunity to get a bird's eye view into the collector's eye. Some of the works are amazing and some of them are esoteric, but you really get a feel of their collecting process. And then of course you get to look at some of these works that have been in private hands for so long. The hope is that the gallery will allow people, whether it's online or when you can get back into a space, for, for we the people to see how these others collected. I think that is going to help grow the footprint of the art collecting base. It gives people confidence and it gives them an education to their eye and understanding that you don't always need to collect the highest and the best piece, but you can collect other works by that same artist. They're just as interesting and just as relevant to an entire collection. So my hope is that they don't just sell everything so privately that nobody gets an opportunity to see it, which is why, you know, the, the auction houses have been this great house for, for us to view what other people collect it. I mean, yes, 100%. The auction houses are by far, and it may be a little bit ironic to some, but they're by far the most democratic way to participate in the art world. Galleries have their preferred clients who they would sell to, but with auction houses, as long as, as, long as you, you win the bid, 
then you'll get the piece. To be fair, I, those four galleries, those three galleries were planning to do a public exhibition for, for the work, but, but the pandemic did, did cancel that. And then finally, just a technical question, Naomi. I have here two questions about, does Athena lend internationally? And is there a minimum maximum loan size? Sure, yes, we lend cross-border. There are some countries and jurisdictions where it makes it more difficult, but please reach out to me and I'm happy to go through those for you. And our loans typically started around $3 million and we give up to 50% of the value of the entire collection. We'd like to have two works of art to amortize the risk. So, but everything is a conversation. Our loans are incredibly bespoke. And so we never say never. And we just always like to have a conversation to start a dialogue going. Got it. And I guess, I mean, that, that, that pretty much wraps it up on my end. The last thing I just want to kind of tell our audience is that one thing that someone very high up in the art market once told me, especially, which I think is particularly pertinent right now with the elections coming up and with this kind of unknown with the pandemic and with flu season and just in generalized geopolitical uncertainty is that in times of uncertainty, things that are rare and precious only increase in value. They only get more rare and precious. So I encourage everyone who isn't already an active collector to reach out to galleries they're interested in, reach out to Christie's, reach out to Naomi, uh, explore, participate in the art world. We're all about welcoming people into the community, even though it may seem a little bit like it's behind a velvet rope at some points. But there's never been a greater time to get into art, whether it be contemporary art, impressionist or modern art, or old masters. So Naomi, I'll let you finish off. And uh, thank you, everyone. Yes, and again, I want to I wanna thank both Jeremy and Adrian for agreeing to be on a panel with me and thank all of you viewers for joining us. Again, please, please visit Jeremy on the canvas online. He's one of the best voices in the art world, an honest and incredible voice. And, and I've learned so much from reading his, his articles and his in-depth conversations with collectors and gallerists and, and people in the auction business and across the art market. They've been incredibly transparent with him, which I think is a testament to Jeremy. Please visit Christie's and Adrian Meyer on his side and come to athenaartfinance.com and Yield Street to learn about our processes and programs. We thank you all again. Have a lovely upcoming weekend and stay safe. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. 
At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.